Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Hello, it's Friday, September 11th. Welcome to the latest edition of Strictly VC Download. It's late Friday and Alex and I are wondering when this freaky year is going to stop being so freaky. As surely some of you experienced or else saw in photos, it was dark here in the Bay Area until around noon on Wednesday, but at least the air quality was decent. Today in Things Feel Apocalyptic, the air quality outside is rated very unhealthy, meaning we're all stuck inside, our interns are bouncing off the wall, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to end the day by screaming into a pillow. But first, a look at some of the week's biggest stories. It was a short week, but because we're closing in on the deadline that Donald Trump had given TikTok's Chinese parent company ByteDance to sell its U.S. business or shut down, there has been no shortage of drama over whether or not a sale is inevitable. It's really no clearer than it was a week ago. On Wednesday, the Wall Street Journal reported that ByteDance is discussing with the U.S. government possible arrangements that would allow TikTok to avoid the full sale of its U.S. operations. By yesterday, Donald Trump was, in typical strongman fashion, telling reporters that despite reports, he has no plans to extend the fast-approaching September 20th deadline, he said. We'll see what happens. It'll either be closed up or they'll sell it, he told them as he was boarding Air Force One. Now, according to Reuters, Beijing is headed up to here with Trump, and it would prefer to see TikTok shut down entirely in the U.S. before it gives into his demands. Reuters says that according to three of its sources, Chinese officials believe a forced sale would make both ByteDance and China appear weak in the face of pressure from Washington. What happens now? I don't know, but there is a lot at stake for a lot of people, which is why TikTok sued the U.S. government in late August, accusing the Trump administration of depriving it of due process. It's tempting to poke fun at this mess at this point, but TikTok has 1,400 employees in the U.S. It has an algorithm that a handful of major U.S. corporations would give their eye teeth to own. It also has a lot of devoted fans here in the U.S., including our sons. (laughs) But someone's going to end up with egg on their face. The question is whether it will be ByteDance, China, or an equally likely suspect, Trump himself. You think your week was bad. Tesla fell 22% from its high this week before clawing back 10% of its lost market share by the time trading concluded on Friday afternoon. Now, let's not shed too many tears for owners of Tesla's stock. Tesla's stock is up more than 4,000% since its debut 10 years ago, with most of these gains occurring in the last year. But even for a stock as volatile as Tesla, this week was a doozy. First, the company made investors nervous by announcing on September 1st that it would capitalize on its sky-high market cap of $465 billion by selling $5 billion of stock. Then, the company was caught up in a massive tech sector sell-off caused in part by news that SoftBank had bought a risky $50 billion call option on technology stocks. The final kicker was news that Tesla had been denied entry into the coveted S&P 500, which would have guaranteed billions in investment dollars from the nation's biggest funds. Tesla's stock had been on a tear lately in large part due to this expected windfall. The move was widely considered to be a shocker. Why would Etsy, a marketplace for makers of sweaty balls, make it over a company that is turning the massive automobile industry upside down? 
According to Stephanie Hill, head of Index Business and Strategy at Mellon, the quality of earnings could be a key issue with the S&P committee. Tesla's positive profitability has been driven by the sale of regulatory credits to other auto manufacturers who need offsets in order to reach their emissions standards. Tesla's notorious volatility its wide portfolio of different businesses, and CEO Elon Musk's history of errant tweets also didn't help. But Tesla's ups and downs this week didn't seem to have an effect on Musk, who tweeted today about plans for Tesla to enter yet another market, home HVAC systems equipped with HEPA filters. Stay tuned, Tesla watchers. It's going to be a bumpy ride. There is also no shortage of SPAC-related news this week, SPACs being those special-purpose acquisition companies that everyone likes to talk about and which have quickly become a status symbol. Forget the yacht or that villa in Mystique. The question on Wall Street and other investor circles is, do you have a SPAC? Gary Cohn, Trump's former economic advisor, raised $720 million earlier this week in an IPO for his new blank check acquisition company. That's 20% more than originally planned. It started trading on the NYSC on Wednesday. Yesterday, Bloomberg reported that the second of three SPACs that have been launched by famed Silicon Valley investor Chamath Palihapitiya is in late-stage talks with the real estate startup Opendoor, which buys and sells homes. The deal would reportedly value Opendoor at $5 billion, and based on Opendoor's non-denial to me yesterday, I assume this report is accurate. It makes sense that Paul Hapatia would pursue this company, as I reported in TechCrunch. He has kind of become the face of SPACs, so he needs these to work. And reverse merging into consumery companies that retail investors can get excited about is probably one way of going about it. Indeed, his first SPAC, or blank check company, which he formed in 2017, wound up picking as its target the space tourism company Virgin Galactic, a company that might have had trouble going public through a traditional IPO, given it doesn't really have close peers. Now it's valued at $4 billion having gone public through a reverse merger with his SPAC last fall. Opendoor is another company that could potentially have trouble with a traditional IPO. It's had its ups and downs over the years, so it might not be a no-brainer to institutional investors. Yet, if it can get out the door into the public market, retail investors might well gravitate to it. In the meantime, there are some potential storm clouds ahead. The electric truck startup Nikola Corporation made huge waves in June when it went public through a reverse merger. But now a report from a short seller is claiming that its tech is actually made with off-the-shelf parts and that it wildly overstated the number of reservations it has taken for its trucks. The report is getting some attention. Also, in a sign that investors may be growing wary of SPACs, another blank check firm, Jupiter Acquisition Corp., which is led by former Sunglass Hut CEO James Houseline, said it's hitting the pause button on its own plans to go public, owing to what appears to be a glut of other SPACs hitting the market. We'll see what happens in the next few months. Coming up next, our interview with Josh Koppelman, the co-founder of First Round Capital, one of the very first seed stage venture firms in what has now become an ocean of them. We talked with Koppelman about how he's been getting through this COVID crisis, where he's shopping right now, and what he thinks of SPACs and some of the other products that are trying to change how money gets raised and by whom. But first, a word from our sponsor. This week's podcast is sponsored by the Draper Venture Network, an alliance of 24 independent VC funds with $1.6 billion in collective assets under management and over 1,000 active portfolio companies based in tech hubs around the world. 
Over the next two weeks, the Draper Network will be highlighting the best company from each of its member funds' portfolios in a virtual showcase, which can be found at drapernetwork.com showcase. The showcase will kick off this coming Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific with a conversation between Tim Draper and Brad Feld about global startup communities. The following week, Tim Draper will speak with Steve Case about championing entrepreneurship outside of Silicon Valley, certainly a relevant topic these days. Again, visit draper.com slash showcase to register and participate in these exclusive conversations. Josh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. The last time I saw you was in early February, which right now seems like a lifetime ago. It was at the Upfront Summit in Los Angeles. You were talking about how to start a venture fund, but you'd mentioned that looking back over the years, dating back to 2004 when you started First Round, you realized that the time from first email to term sheet had shrunk from 90 days to just nine today. Of course, again, the world abruptly changed right after that. How would you describe the firm's pacing right now? It's funny, thinking back to the Upfront Summit, I, I feel like that's the last time I left my house. Um, <laughs> it's, so what's interesting is even though the world is different, I wouldn't say pace has changed. If anything, I'd say pace has accelerated. Previously, a physical meeting was a barrier which required logistics, timing. And I actually think that what I'm seeing now is that with the shift to Zoom, and the shift to virtual pitches, the bar to take a pitch as a VC has come down because you no longer have to allocate a full hour if someone's driving into you. You could do a 30-minute Zoom pitch. So I'd actually say that pacing and velocity has increased, if not stayed the same. I'm not seeing the downshift, especially at the seed stage post-COVID. And do you think it's also easier for startups to get to you because your time was so much more precious before involving, like you said, travel, a bigger time commitment? Are you more willing to meet with startups that are maybe cold calling you? So, yes, that's part of it. I'd also say, though, that seed stage in general is accelerating. You have some of these multi-stage funds and if you're looking at a multi-stage firm, it's really hard to write a 30 or $50 million check in a founder you haven't met. It's a lot easier to write 10, three to $5 million checks in founders who you've known before at seed. So as a result, I think you're seeing a lot more activity on seed as opposed to the series B, C, or D. One thing I wanted to ask, we had interviewed Michael Kim, the LP, a couple of months ago, and he was predicting a wave of startups going out of business, a seed stage startups specifically. And I wonder if that might happen because, as you're saying, lots of seed stage activity happening, but we saw a lot of seed stage startups get funded. And then we've seen this wave of seed extensions. Will we see more extended funding for these same startups or are VCs going to be looking ahead to the next batch? So it's hard to know. My crystal ball's in the shop. What I would say is that in general, when you see a lot of capital rushing into a space and you see a compressing decision-making period, it's not necessarily a recipe for great outcomes. Hey, Josh, I understand it's become easier to do meetings with startups because of Zoom, but the overall economic climate is still so uncertain and there's still so many people out of work. Are you finding that there's a lot of activity in certain areas, such as in teleconferencing or telemedicine, or is it across the board? 
So I'd say it's across the board. I think there clearly is a recency bias, right? I don't think a week goes by that we don't see a pitch for someone creating a marketplace to connect physical trainers with clients via video or another curbside pickup app. But even still, I still am seeing even things which are not pure COVID driven, we're seeing uh, increased velocity, whether it's robotics, whether it's fintech. I also think that what happened was in March, April, and May, while the market was still processing, and I'd say the public markets were down, I think a lot of founders held off from fundraising. So right now, I also feel like you're seeing a double load of founders, those who had held off from going to the market during the first part of the pandemic. And now that the public markets are back up, I think people are seeing a willingness to test the private markets. That's interesting because they probably were a little fearful that they'd be marked down and not surprisingly. Uh, But that does put you in a really awkward position of getting hit on all sides, I suppose. Yeah, I think Look, if I've learned anything by being in this industry for a long period of time, I think it's important to have a model and to stick to the model. When I look back to 99 and 2000, the venture funds that really got in the most trouble, you had some venture funds that historically were 300 or $400 million funds, and they raised it every four years or so. Yet during the dot-com boom, those $300 million funds, they raised a $1.2 billion fund. And instead of deploying it over two to three years, They deployed it over three or four quarters. And obviously, those funds took a real beating. And I'd also say, by the way, that the funds that walked away from the market in 2008 and 2009, on the other side, when the market was really scary during the Great Recession, those funds missed out. So our basic approach has been to remain consistent. I think that if you change your strategy at either end of a pendulum inflection point, it's really risky. So we're still funding roughly the same number of companies per quarter that we funded for the last 15 years. I also wanted to ask you, Josh, before we hopped on, I was just trying to figure out where you were in terms of your funds. And I saw that the last news of your funds came out in the fall of 2018, and it was a $200 million fund and a sidecar fund, but you never made an announcement. We don't announce our funds because we think it's a non-event. We've been fortunate (laughs) enough to have pretty much the same group of limited partners for the last 15 years. So a fund for us has been just an arbitrary date when we want to make sure we we go from vehicle X to vehicle X plus one. That was our last fund. And I don't comment about future fundraising for SEC reasons. Josh, you also mentioned recency bias. And I'd noticed that some of First Round's newest investments were businessy, which again, seems to be happening all over the place. One was a workforce management company called Legion, a legal services support startup that I'd written about, Steno, another one, which is a global ordering and supply chain platform for small businesses. I wonder, are VCs over-indexing on business opportunities or are there just so many things happening right now? How are you thinking about consumer startups? Are you seeing anything interesting on that front? So we are. I wish we were seeing more. I think that when you look at our first four funds, for example, Greater than 50% of the companies we funded were consumer. For the last three, I think enterprise or fintech or healthcare collectively, but consumer has represented less than 50% of the fund. And so we'd love to see more. And we are still funding companies in the consumer space. There's a social screen sharing app called Squad that we're excited investors in. But I think that when you look at the velocity of company creation, especially around industry transformation. We're just very excited about the companies we're seeing that might be in some 
boring, non-sexy industries, but where technology could really drive massive productivity gains. Are you also doing a lot of pre-seed deals? I wish I knew what the definition of pre-seed versus seed versus mango seed. So (laughs) to some degree, I think the difference between a pre-seed and a seed at this stage, oftentimes they're both companies that don't have validation in market, that have an incomplete team and an incomplete technology. So it tends to just be based on the amount of capital they're raising. So the answer is yes, the broadest definition of first round, whether it's at the idea phase to whether it's a product that already has done customer discovery, we're seeing the definition of a first round really stretch. Roughly what percentage of your deals are investments in companies that don't have customers and don't have customer validation? I know it's the majority. I would be hard pressed to put a specific percentage above that, but I feel very safe saying that the majority of our investments today are pre-revenue, pre-customer. So Josh, you built your name by investing in these incredibly young companies and you have your dorm room fund. You more recently launched something called a graduate fund to capture people that had already graduated from college. Again, with COVID, how has that changed the equation? How are you reaching these founder students and recent graduates since you can't actually spend time with them necessarily on a physical campus? When we set up Dorm Room Fund, the basic philosophy there was to say that some of the most epic and iconic companies of all time were started by students. Whether you're looking at Microsoft or FedEx or Dell or Facebook or Yahoo or Google, they all got their start by students. And sometimes the students wanted to drop out and pursue the business, but many times they started it while they were in school. And I started my first company I co-founded while I was an undergraduate at Penn. So we realized that there's a real opportunity to maybe provide some of the earliest capital while someone's still at school and when they haven't even decided whether they want to pursue the business full-time. So Dorm Room Fund operates today in four cities, San Francisco, Boston, New York, and Philadelphia, and on a bunch of colleges throughout. And it's run by students. Each city has a student partnership of eight to 10 Dorm Room Fund partners who identify, review, and pick the most promising companies created by their peers and they fund them. The thesis here is that rather than us sitting in our offices or sitting by Zoom trying to remotely pick, if students are smart enough to start these great companies, they're also smart enough to identify them. And their job's gotten a little bit harder as well, because now if school is virtual, they're trying to have to figure out ways to meet founders and review Mm -hmm. those founders electronically as well. A benefit for us, though, is that you might not just be tied to those four cities anymore. That's a great point. But that is interesting that that's a, an additional challenge for your fund managers. It reminds me of something else I've been thinking of lately, which is just how much different it must be for these very young founders who are managing distributed teams, which might be the case permanently. Do you have any advice for young founders who find themselves in the situation? I mean, it seems like it would require a very different skill set. It puts a real emphasis on communication. It puts a real emphasis on foresight and planning. You have to be far more deliberate and thoughtful about your leadership. You can't just be a spontaneous leader. In terms of what we're seeing on the ground, I'd say that if I had to grossly generalize, companies that had pre-existing teams that functioned well together, whether the team was 10 people or 100 people, if you had a team already, 
and they went from an in-person to an online world, they tend to work. A lot of them have continued without missing a beat. Where it's been really hard is companies that are building teams remotely, where the team had not worked together, where they didn't have a cadence yet, and they hadn't baked their culture and their processes. And we're seeing those companies try to find ways to at least build some level of hybrid meeting in person, even if it's outdoors, just to, to bake the DNA of how a team works. Can I ask, how does your team work? Because you've managed a pretty distributed team for a long time. You've got a big office in San Francisco. You have, a, I know, a very small office, which may be just you in Philadelphia. You've got an office in New York. What are some of your learnings for managing a distributed team? I think, ironically and unintentionally, we were pretty well positioned to move online in that our partners are split across three offices. And for the last 12 years, we've done video conference partner meetings. So of the over almost 400 companies we funded in the last 15 years, I would say less than 10% occurred with all of the partners meeting a founder. 90% of them occurred with partners meeting founders electronically. And so what, yes, what used to happen is we would all come into one of our three offices and there'd be three boxes on the screen. And maybe now you're seeing six or seven boxes on the screen. But in general, our methodology for reviewing companies hasn't really changed that much. And in fact, our system for how we decide or how we talk about a company was never based really on proximity. Historically, a founder would come into a partner meeting. We have them twice a week. They would present. And then the partners would actually all, before it gets discussed, we would all write down our thoughts in several areas. So we would spend 15 minutes writing. And only after we all write, do we read what everyone else had to say and then discuss and we found that that's a way to try to reduce bias. That's a way to try to make sure that every opinion is heard and it's not the loudest voice in the room or the most recent voice in the room to talk. And that works perfectly fine over video conference. So we, we've been fortunate. Josh, the industry has obviously changed quite a bit since you founded First Round. And as you said, now the decision process has shrunk from 90 days to nine days. There are now hundreds of firms that are going after early stage deals. There are larger firms now that have started practices focusing on pre-seed deals. How have your results been impacted by what's been happening in the market? And are you still getting the same return on investment that you did in the past? So I think the real answer is if you're talking about changes in the last five years, no one's results are in yet, right? So for me to talk about unrealized markups over the last five years, sure, they look fine, but I've been in this business a long time to realize that there's a big difference between realized and unrealized. But in general, if you look at the intermediate metrics, companies that where we lead their first round, the chance of them raising their next round are 2x the industry average when they raise with first round. So we're still seeing promising signs, but recognize that what was a contrarian idea 15 years ago, which was institutional seed, is now a very consensus idea. Josh, to your point about nobody's results are in over the last five years, companies have obviously waited longer and longer to go public over the last decade or so. Do you think that the IPO process is broken? I'm not sure I'd argue that it's broken. I actually think you're seeing far more companies exit and we've seen a real acceleration in both the number of exits, the size of those exits, which I think is a promising thing. I think that there is a benefit to the transparency that a public market shines on a company. 
because it's how you truly could lock in a value, right? We've all seen companies that have garnered valuation X in the private markets only to find that it wasn't a true representation of the company's ultimate value when it was fully transparent in the public markets. So I think the IPO process is a healthy process in general. I think the last two years, we've seen an incredible acceleration. And now with SPACs, that's a whole new element that's coming in. And so what do you think of them? (laughs) I don't know is the real answer. On the one hand, just for fun, I made sure that we owned lastround.com as well in case we ever wanted to launch our SPAC. But that's more of a joke than anything else. It's hard to know the true benefit of a SPAC. As we've now begun to see a market shift towards allowing direct listings with a fundraising component, which the New York Stock Exchange just got approved, I think you might actually see that as a far more viable and frequent fundraising or liquidity device. And and why is that? Because honestly, I'm still trying to make sense of which is better. And if this new ruling by the SEC that allows the primary raise as part of the direct listing will cool this feverish behavior around SPACs. Is one more economical? What do you think of the advantages potentially of direct listings? Well, I think direct listings is the most economical. You're not allocating a heavy portion of the cap table towards a promote. They're not warrants that are performance-based, right? It's very clear that what you're really doing is just truly finding the right market clearing price for the company. As I've watched the last few years developed, I sort of firmly find myself in Camp Gurley and the benefits of direct listing. I'm wondering when you have portfolio companies that are maybe asked if they might be interested in a SPAC, if that hasn't happened, it seems inevitable that it will. No, it's And they ask you for your advice. I'm sorry, it has happened. Okay. So what do you say? Do you say maybe, or should we talk about a direct listing? I think that it, it would be foolish to have a conversation about one, absent the alternatives. Mm -hmm. So you should be sitting down and having the conversation of, all right, what are you solving for? Is it liquidity? Is it capital raise? Is it a public currency? Is it to be able to offer your earliest employees the liquidity and cash to benefit from the time they've put in, right? And to look at all of the options, right? So I, I don't think it would ever make sense to look at a SPAC without looking at the options. And and I think it's fair to say, you, you know, if you're contemplating a direct listing, you can look at the benefits or drawbacks of a SPAC as well. So speaking of innovative products, can I ask Josh also what you think of these rolling funds, which I have to say, I don't really know much about. I've seen rolling fundraises in past years, rolling funds being allowing managers to share deal flow with fund investors on a quarterly subscription basis while netting carried interest over a multi-year period. Very new. I don't know. What do you think of them? Look, I think it's very creative. I've personally participated as a limited partner in some of them. When I started first round with Howard Morgan back in 2004, we had three questions when we started. Question number one is, would I enjoy being a VC rather than an entrepreneur? Question number two would be, could I overcome my geographic handicap? Because at the time I was living in Philadelphia and most of the companies that we were funding were on the West Coast. And question number three was, am I any good at that? And so I had a hard time signing up to make a 10-year commitment to a job that I wasn't sure, A, if I'd enjoy, B, if I lived in the right place, or C, if I'd be any good at. And yet the traditional fund structures of a 10-year fund would really lock me into a job for 10 years. So instead of that, FRC1 is really a bunch of one-year funds. We raised 
funds for a one-year period of time where he said, all right, we'll invest in 2005 and see how we like it. And if we like it, we'll raise another fund in 2006. And then we'll do it in 2007. And, And after about three years, I got enough confidence on my answers to those three questions that I felt comfortable signing up to a 10-year tour of duty. And so I I think that anything that enables people who might want to explore a career in investing to be able to pursue it Mm -hmm. is a really powerful thing. Interesting. So maybe we'll see more of them. You do make a great case for them. Josh, I did want to ask you, you mentioned Howard, who is now a chairman of B Capital. A lot of VCs who've been in the industry, kingmakers, are starting to move on from active investing. Bill Gurley, Todd Chaffee, I've heard of other people who I'm not at liberty (laughs) to disclose publicly. I'm just wondering, how are you thinking about succession at first round? And is this a brand that you feel strongly should exist 20 years from now? I feel like there's this atomization in the industry where it's really become much more dependent on the individual versus perhaps the shingle above the door. Personally, I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. I enjoy what I'm doing. I think we have a very strong team. In terms of the future, we are actively looking for a new partner right now. And we took the innovative, and I'm using air quotes when I say that, step of actually posting a public job description for it and a call for applications. I think that all too often, partner recruiting gets done inside of proprietary networks. And we're guilty of doing that, right? If you look at my three other investing partners, Bill or Haley or Todd, the one thing all three have in common is that previously, they were all founders of a first round company. And so rather than just fishing within our own community, we're trying to go beyond that and are running an active process and trying very hard to make it a fair and open process. That said, I think that in a world where capital is increasingly available, what differentiates more than anything is the brand, is the promise of value add. When First Round was first getting started, there were so few seed funds. So it was like walking into a shoe store and there's only three sneakers on the shelf. A founder could try on all three, could meet with all of them and see which fits and pick. But today, when you walk into that shoe store and you see a thousand shoes on the shelf, it's really hard to know where to go first. And we believe that the brands that have proven the ability to create winners before will really matter. Just like Nike is defined by the entrepreneurs who have benefited from its product, I think that in an undifferentiated way, uh, brand actually matters more now than ever before. Josh, you talked about your partner search. Is that a West Coast position or an East Coast position? What we've said is if we had a preference, our preference would be that the candidate would live in San Francisco or New York, but we don't want to limit applicants to just people who live there right now. So in fact, we are talking with people that live throughout the country. Second question about that. I think it's great that you're making this process and your criteria transparent to the world in general. Obviously, diversity has been a big issue for VCs and entrepreneurs in the startup world. And I'm wondering what you guys are doing to encourage diversity, not only within your fund, but also within your portfolio companies. And also, what approaches are you seeing out there that you think are effective? Clearly, we recognized that we haven't appropriately prioritized nor done the work historically necessary to build a a diverse senior investment team, which is why we posted publicly, right? We're very influenced by 
a blog post by Brian Dixon at Kapoor Capital, where he said, if you don't publicize the jobs that are available at your venture firm, then you're intentionally being exclusionary. People can't get a job that they don't know exists. And we agree with him. So we're clearly focusing on trying to find new sources of prospective partner talent. We have a number of initiatives throughout our firm, whether it's a pledge we recently signed to make sure that every term sheet we put out preserves allocation for funders of color or underrepresented funders, right? So that not only are we thinking about diversity inside our firm or inside of a company, but we're also thinking about diversity on the cap table. We've been running a number of training programs and we have a pretty strong process with new investments to help them focus on building diverse talent pipelines as they hire. Because one of the things we've seen is that if you don't focus on building a diverse team in your first 10 hires, it gets much harder to expand because people tend to hire from within networks. And if you start off lacking diversity, it just gets harder later. That's terrific, Josh. I wanted to ask one more question. Disrupt is coming up next week, TechCrunch's big annual event. And I have a number of conversations with VCs there as well. And I, I'm going to ask them this too, but it, there are a lot of questions have been raised about the culture of Silicon Valley specifically lately. The New York Times just did a big piece on it. But it also feels like there are more clashes between investors and the journalists who cover tech, which as a longtime reporter has been strange for me to follow. I'm just wondering, do you feel frustrated by the press's coverage of the tech industry? Do you have any thoughts on what's happening out there? Because I know you are on Twitter where a lot of this stuff is happening. It's a little bit inside baseball, but I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about what's going on out there. Yeah, so I wouldn't say I have any particularly profound thoughts. Tech used to be a separate ecosystem. All you have to do is look at what's driving the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ, and you can see that tech has shifted from being its own ecosystem to just part of everything, right? You no longer have healthcare tech, it's just healthcare. You no longer have consumer or social tech, it's just part of the fabric of the world. So I think rightly so, you're seeing journalists that maybe previously were just tied up in the ecosystem now have to place a more skeptical eye on what's happening in tech. So I think it's just part of the maturation process. Well, Josh, I think we should let you go. We've taken up enough of your time, but it's always really great to talk to you. I so appreciate your joining us today. And also, I really do hope that I see you sooner than later. (laughs) I'm looking forward to it, Connie. And Alex, nice to meet you as well. Thanks for listening. This is the Strictly VC Podcast signing off. We hope you have a good week, and I'll uh, switch it over to my partner, Connie. (laughs) Thanks, everybody. We always appreciate you listening. I just wanted to make note that I will be participating in TechCrunch's Disrupt event next week. Please tune in if you can. I think it's going to be really great. I have conversations with Roloff Botha planned, Peter Fenton, Renata Quintini, Dana Grayson, Lo Tony, the Chainsmokers, and the one that I'm most looking forward to, Conan O'Brien. Hope you'll join us there. Thank you again.